The Fabulous 413 podcast is funded by Northeast Solar, homegrown in Hatfield, Massachusetts, and providing energy savings for their customers for over 10 years. Learn more at northeast-solar.com. Welcome to the Fabulous 413. I'm Monty Belmonte. And I'm Khalees Smith. Later in the show, we go back to Jacob's Pillow and Beckett and talk with director Pam Taji about dancing in the mountains and making dance more accessible to everyone. We'll also talk with Harrison Bardwell from a ninth-generation Hatfield farm, which was largely spared from the floods of the last weeks. We'll hear how he and his farm are supporting the farmers that were impacted. But first... Were you at that hearing on aliens yesterday? I was not, but I saw a little bit about it. According to the Washington Post, okay. the U.S. concealing a longstanding program that retrieves and reverse engineers unidentified flying objects, says retired Major General Crush. Uh, the Pentagon has denied it. But that's like a cool hearing to be in where they say the guy under oath says there's aliens. Yeah. I mean, there has to be some other kind of form of life in this universe. But the frustrating thing about the hearing is that you don't really get any pictures or concrete detail. You, you get this, like, I can't answer that, but you know what I'm saying. Right. I don't understand why it has to be secret. I think we can so, handle it. I think the American public yeah, and think- the public of the world can handle it at this point. We need to know. Yeah, I'm with you. As my congressman, I'm asking you, show me the aliens. When I see them, I will take a picture and send them. I promise you. <laughs> we'll invite them on the food bank march. Well, we could do that. Yeah. Time for our weekly check-in with U.S. Congressman from the 2nd Congressional District of Massachusetts, Worcester's own Congressman Jim McGovern. McGoverning with McGovern. You can always send us a question at the fab 413 at nepm.org. For the Congressman, we'll have a listener question in just a second. Uh, what's the latest with FEMA and the floods? I know there was a story in the Republican uh, the other day about you urging USDA disaster declaration for flood-ravaged Connecticut River Valley farms. And uh, we talked with Tim Garvin of the United Way of Central Mass earlier this week, as well as State Senate President Karen Spilka and Senator Joe Comerford about the responses in that regard. And what it seemed like from what they were saying is that the Federal mm-hmm. Emergency Management agency money cannot be used to support the farmers. Is this an end around to right. work through USDA so that federal money can still come and support them? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, FEMA focuses mostly on infrastructure issues, roads, bridges, that kind of stuff. But what we need is direct assistance to a lot of our farmers who have been adversely impacted by these rains and floods. You know, so we're doing our, our best to try to figure out ways to, to make sure that that happens. And you talked to Tim Garber of the United Way. He's being the conduit for us to try to raise money to give directly to our farmers to help them deal with the crisis that they're now faced with. But this is serious. I think we'll, we'll, we'll figure this out, but it's not that easy. There are some deficiencies in federal and state programs that don't recognize that in crises like this, we need to get assistance directly to our farmers. It's a, they're an important part of our economy. Uh, they're an important part of our food system. And a lot of our farmers don't have crop insurance. It's expensive and they're not used to you know, these kinds of crises. So we're working you know, as a team to try to make all this right the idea that infrastructure is bridges and roads and that's it, as opposed to infrastructure is a food security system locally and FEMA money being reserved for that sort of thing is, I think, would be an important step, maybe not for this particular disaster, but potentially going forward. Not that our bridges and roads don't need assistance, too, because I'm sure you might have heard the story about that road collapse in Deerfield and the dramatic rescue by the deputy fire chief, who is also somebody uh, who we've had both long association with. Ben Clark, fruit farmer from Clarkdale Fruit Farm, rescued a woman who was about to fall into a, a huge gully that was created by the flooding. Yeah, well, you know, Ben's a superhero. But uh, <laughs> we need to make these federal and state programs more practical and more useful 
not just for the overall infrastructure, uh, but for individual farmers. You know, a lot of people don't realize that some of our, some of our farmers just survive crop to crop, paycheck to paycheck. You know, they don't have all these reserves. Uh, they can't survive a season where they produce nothing. This is a major crisis. We got to get through it, and that's where get where the fundraising efforts with Tim Garvin is going to help be the conduit for with the United Way, but. We need to look at long term. How do we tweak these programs to make them more useful? Turning to more national politics, an NPR report this week talking about a federal judge that blocked a key part of the Biden administration's immigration policy at the U.S.-Mexico border. The rules put sharp restrictions on asylum seekers to try to discourage them from crossing the border before they have submitted for asylum in the country, the port of origin, I guess. Immigrant rights activists say that this part of the policy is identical to several Trump administration policies that were also initially blocked in court. And during the Trump administration, you and other Democrats were all over this issue. Uh, where's the Democratic outcry now with your own party trying to implement some of the same laws when it comes to asylum well, seeking? Well, we, 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 we have been critical. I've been critical of the Biden administration in terms of how they have kind of turned back the clock on immigrant rights. Look, if, you know, the reason why people are coming here is because of turmoil and economic hardship and other negative factors that are happening in their home countries. Maybe rather than demagoguing this issue, we ought to be figuring out ways to help stabilize some of these countries that are producing so many immigrants. So, I mean, we keep on talking about walls and how to make it more difficult for people, some fleeing violence, some fleeing the impacts of, of, of climate change where they can't grow anything anymore, some fleeing the indifference of their, of their own governments. So we, we need to have a more holistic conversation on immigration. Otherwise, we're going to be constantly talking about people coming to the border. But most of the people that come here, quite frankly, would prefer to stay in their own country if they could. You know, they're desperate. And I think that the Biden administration is, is kind of embracing some of the Trump tactics, mostly out of political concerns. They're trying to combat the criticism that they're getting from the right by emulating the right. Wrong way to do it. I mean, uh, we need a comprehensive immigration policy that makes sense, that welcomes refugees and people fleeing hardships, but we need to deal with the internal conflicts in some of these countries. That's the only way to stop this. Turning to a listener question, James Mayuski writes, I expect he does support it, but I sure hope the Honorable Representative McGovern would appreciate the opportunity to highlight his support for the Whole Milk for Healthy Kids Act. Are you familiar with this act? Trying to get whole milk as opposed to 2% or skim milk into the lunches of kids in schools. Are you familiar with what James is writing about? Yeah, a little bit. I, I, you know, I'm for giving kids a choice, you know, and I think some of the rules and, and regulations and our school feeding programs have been micromanaged in a way that, quite frankly, is unnecessarily in the best interest of our kids. They initially began that way, but they're not. I mean, and, yeah, this, uh, this is based know, on the lot... outdated no- notion that the saturated fats and whole milk were bad. Right. Now they're saying that, that right. I accidentally bought skim milk the other day, and it's like a crisis in my own house. I'm like, oh my god, I need to finish <laughs> this so I can go back to my whole or raw right, milk. Yeah. yeah, no, and I, I I support it. You know, we have a farm bill coming up. You know, there may be some opportunities to deal with it in that, although the current farm bill um, that is being drafted by the Republicans is, is really about throwing people off of SNAP. But there's an opportunity. I know I know what he's talking about, and I, I support him. An interesting bipartisan move that you've done this week, Congressman, in regards to hunger and health and nutrition, is it true that you are advocating that Bob Dole, former senator, former presidential candidate, receive the congressional gold medal? Yeah, I am. Look at I. He, he and I disagreed on a ton of issues, and uh, you know he was a conservative uh, Republican. I'm a I'm a liberal Democrat. But the one area that we had common ground on was on 
the importance of nutrition and making sure people had enough to eat. He worked with my former boss, Senator George McGovern, no relation, for many years in the United States Senate. And Bob Dole, you know, again, on the 100 issues, the 1,000 issues we, we strongly disagreed on, but on the issue of understanding the importance of food and, and the importance of getting nutritious food to people, you know, we, we worked together on um, issues domestically here in the United States, also issues internationally. There was a time when there was some bipartisan cooperation and commitment to these issues, and we get some stuff done. We need to go back to that. Do you think other Republicans are supportive of this posthumous congressional gold medal for Bob Dole? Yeah, I hope so. I mean, in, in the uh, in the House, um, some of these Republicans probably think Bob Dole's a super liberal. Uh, but the bottom line is, uh, this is a man who, who served our country during World War II. Um, that's where he was injured, and he had a distinguished career in the United States Senate, um, as well as running for president. But did some really good stuff for our farmers and for the fight against hunger. So I um, I support it. Well, speaking of World War II, I know we talked about Barbenheimer last week, as well as the very controversial hot take of, about Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. But I did see that you saw Oppenheimer. I got an email from the Trap Rock Center for Peace earlier this morning talking about how they were very critical of the Oppenheimer film and their preparation for the annual Hiroshima and Nagasaki commemorations, thinking it lionized Oppenheimer, that it didn't go far enough. It didn't show the, the horrors of nuclear war to the level that it should have. It didn't talk enough about the indigenous impacts in regards to the Los Alamos testing. What was your take on Oppenheimer, the film, Congressman? Well, you know what? I, I And I respect all those critiques, and they're right about that. But I think it's an important film nonetheless. And I thought that it raised some important moral questions about nuclear weapons. I mean, I, I, I thought it was powerful. Yeah, I, you know, I guess we there could have been much more talking about the devastation of these of these bombs. But, you know, it ends with Oppenheimer. Well, I don't want to give you the end of the movie, but I mean... Spoiler it, alert, it, the it, bombs worked. I mean, Oppenheimer does not come out of this saying, oh, great, I, I, this was all wonderful stuff. I mean, he, he raises serious questions about how the fact that, you know, the advances they made in terms of these weapons, you know, that there were moral questions. That, and it was, it was really about how you put the genie back in the bottle and you can't. But I, I, I think it's an important movie for people to see because a lot of people don't know about our history. And and yeah, it, it, it doesn't spend a lot of time commenting on the moral implications of, of nuclear weapons, but you definitely see a man who is very conflicted uh, at the end of his life and is isolated because he's trying to figure out ways to put the genie back in the bottle, which obviously he can't do. It's rife for critique in the Trap Rock Center. I agree with a lot of their sentiments in this as well. But the fact that you and I are talking about this, that other people across the country are talking yeah. about the dangers of nuclear war, I think for that alone, it's an important movie. I have legislation to try to, to move us toward you know, a nuclear weapons-free world. It's really hard to get people to focus. I mean, it was easier 20 years ago to get people in Congress to focus on these issues of arms control. My hope is that this movie will maybe provide an opening that we can maybe have some more in-depth discussions. I got the audiobook version of American Prometheus, the biography of Oppenheimer that the movie is largely based on, and I will be listening to it in my car after the show today as I drive to Worcester. I got to pick up two of my kids. What should I do in your hometown, U.S. Congressman Jim McGovern? What are they doing in Worcester? It's a child exchange. My sister has had them for the last couple of days. I'm going to go pick them up from uh, my sister. We're going to go to the Worcester Public Market, I think, for dinner. Is that a good place to go? Yeah, the Worcester Public Market is a wonderful place to go. I mean, I'm not sure that the Worcester Woosocks are playing, but there's a great baseball stadium there. But Worcester Public Market is a really neat place. There's a lot of diversity of places to go. They'll have no problem finding something that they like. And it's just kind of a neat addition to Worcester that, quite frankly, has transformed that section of Worcester. I mean, that before this was, was kind of depressing. And now it's, you know, it's resulted in all these new businesses that have popped up all around. So Worcester's doing some really neat stuff. And uh, people who haven't been there for a few years are always amazed at how good we're doing. And so I would urge, spend a lot of time at the market. I mean, there's 
you can have Italian food, you can have seafood, you can have Indian food, you can have, you name it, it's, it's there. I'm excited. U.S. Congressman from the 2nd Congressional District of Massachusetts, Worcester's own Congressman Jim McGovern, joins us every week. If you've got a question for the Congressman, you can send it my way, thefab413 at nepm.org, or text us, 1-800-639-9120. Thanks as always, Congressman. All the best. Be safe. Later in the show, we'll take you to Bardwell Farm in Hatfield, which was largely spared from the flooding and where farmer Harrison Bardwell is stepping up to help the Hatfield farms that weren't so lucky. But up next, back to the Berkshires and Jacob's Pillow. We'll talk with director Pam Taji. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on NEPM. I'm sitting with Pamela Taji, who is the director of Jacob's Pillow Festival in Beckett, Mass., which is dance mecca. And I'm so happy to be here. You just have to imply that over the radio. Thank you so much for sitting with me. Yes, my my pleasure. It's great to meet you and uh, have you here. And you're in one of these top of the mountain in Beckett days where the sun is coming out and then you have dark clouds all in one 20 minute period. So, but it's, it's actually quite beautiful here today. I'm glad you've made it up here. Thank you for coming. You haven't been in charge of the festival for two too long. How has it been taking over the leadership here? So I've actually amazingly been here for seven years now. But you know, the pandemic divided my time. I came right before our 85th anniversary and was really charged with reimagining this place from a festival into a year round center. And all of that was, you know, going along really well till 2020 when we canceled our festival for the first time in our history. And then I have to say we have an extraordinary board of directors and the whole team leaned in to create a a new five-year strategic plan. And we came out of the pandemic last year, in part. Last year was a bit of a slog still. But we celebrated our 90th anniversary. And we had completely renovated the Ted Shawn Theater, added air cooling, which in a post-pandemic era, to not have ventilation and air cooling was like not an option. So it was a glorious uh, reopening last summer. And the new people that are discovering Jacob's Pillow are what? Um, filmy, as well as the new artists that we're inviting. There's so many pillow debuts this summer, including Axis Dance that you're going to see. Now that you say that you've been here for seven years, like that I feel like is the trajectory that I've seen because there was a definite shift in the companies that were coming, the people that were staying and teaching and and the workshops over that period of time that I was seeing, at least in the advertising, because again, this is, I'm a bad dance fan and this is my first trip out, but like it won't be my last, I promise. (laughs) But there was a shift in the content of the festival since you took over. What were some of the things that you wanted to bring to the Berkshires in dance for the festival when you took over? Well, I think I had a a mission. One was we had had very much of an international and national gaze, but not so much of a local and regional gaze. We had a a really exceptional program that we do in the public schools called Curriculum in Motion that has been in existence for over 30 years. But I created the first ever community engagement department to really think intentionally about reciprocal relationships with our community And when you start doing that, then you think about sort of where dance lives. Does it just live up here on top of the mountain? Or could we actually bring dance to the communities that surround us? So you started to see a lot more community workshops. We have Jacob's Pillow on the Road. That's a brand new program just to understand the fact that there's barriers to people coming to Jacob's Pillow. So how do we 
work on those barriers by, I think, going over to other people's houses in hopes that they come over to our house. So that's been one strategy. The other is to uh, think about gatekeeping in legacy organizations like Jacob's Pillow. I, I was no longer comfortable with being the sole gatekeeper. And so I opened up our curatorial team to include two associate curators of color so that I would not only have the pool of artists that I'm passionate about, but I would benefit from their wisdom and and those people that they're passionate about. So some of the shifts in programming that you'll see is, for example, there is a whole street dance culture in our country that had not been represented here before. So that's a, a major strand. We made a commitment to featuring indigenous artists at the Pillow every year, and we've moved forward with that. Well, at the same time, you know, being an artistic home to companies that have always been here before, like Mark Morris, Martha Graham, you know, it's so important that that, that that total breadth of what dance is continue to be represented here alongside perhaps uh, centering some artists who have been at the margins. I have to throw out that you have a program for people 35 and under to allow them to come to the festival that I, had I known <laughs> about it, I would have absolutely taken advantage of. What's the I think that there is a certain importance in having things like that for people who are younger to have more access to the arts. Right. But can you talk about your, your under 35 program? Because I feel like more people need to know about this. Yes, thank you so much. So any night of the week you just um, that you want to come, call the box office. We have a certain number of tickets available. Um, and then the other thing we did this summer, again, about access, is the one-night performances on our outdoor stage are choose what you pay. You can pay as little as $5 if you want to come. We have a suggested price, which is anywhere from 25 to 35 but a lot of people who are coming in a group maybe pay 5 to $10, and that's great because, again, we want to take the barrier away. Children are free on the outdoor stage to come see the outdoor stage, which, you know, if you want to begin to introduce your little one to live performance. You sort of don't want to be cooped up in a theater and worry about whether or not they're going to squirm and run away from their seat. They can do that outside. It's okay. Everything goes. So there's there so many people have introduced their children to the arts here at Jacob's Pillow because of that magnificent outdoor stage. And again, if you've just never felt this place before, you just have to do it once and you'll understand what people are talking about. The idea of seeing the human body, the magnificence of the human body against the backdrop of the Berkshire Hills. You know, there's sort of, for me, it sort of connects us to what's possible at a time when there is so much tragedy, there is so much division. We get hope when we see what human beings can accomplish. And I'm so glad you're here for the first time and, and so <laughs> glad that you're covering us in this way. <laughs> my, again, it, it's my pleasure. I am psyched. I'm trying not to like hardcore fangirl out <laughs> while I'm here and I'm being very bad about it. So part of your mission in taking over leadership, Pamela Taji, of Jacob's Pillow was to make it a year-round space. Mm -hmm. So what does this performance area look like in the winter? What does it do in the fall? Okay, so um, really good question, because let me tell you, you know, we have extremes of weather in the summer. 
summer we have extremes of weather in the winter so this is not a hospitable place up here on top of the mountain in the middle of winter so this is not a place that will ever have year-round presenting but when we look around we have 220 acres 36 buildings and I came from a space starved university where people fought over a studio space all the time so we made the decision to turn over our studio to artists in something called the pillow lab so we have 10 companies come here for 10 days two weeks they live on campus and they create new works in our studio and let me tell you during the pandemic this was a godsend because we would have people tested in New York this is before you could buy tests at the you know drugstore and they would get in the car and not get out of the car till they got here and they could dance together for 10 weeks you know or 10 days I mean and you know the tears the the sort of how the disruption of the pandemic to have been able to be a haven for artists during that time has been really important so the pillow lab is the core of what we do now year-round in addition our programs in the public schools curriculum in motion continue we have a number of other community programs that continue such as Pittsfield moves which is an organization that or it's a collective of residents in Pittsfield who are thinking about what will get their community to move and they do it in embodied ways and believe it or not they met every week uh, during the pandemic virtually just to keep that going that connection to each other going the other thing that happens year-round is our college partnership program you know in the summer colleges really don't run. Most colleges don't have summer sessions. So I came from a university and I'm like, how can we connect our next generation, which is college and university students, to the work that we're doing? So they come to the Pillow Lab showings of artists and they see work in progress and they connect to how you think critically about making a work. So that's something that we run. And then we have an entire digital stage that happens. We have monthly notices to people and everyone should know about this where you'll be able to watch a stream of something that happened at Jacob's Pillow over the summer. You can watch in the comfort of your own home. This is, of course, in the aftermath of the pandemic, one of the silver linings was discovering, actually, there's an entirely different audience for Jacob's Pillow. There are people who will never get here in person who can access us online, and those audiences are younger and more diverse. And so we have got to keep that digital profile going in the post-pandemic era, and our next five-year plan really has us creating a very robust digital platform uh, for the future that's going to tie into the building of our new theater. People may not know that we lost one of our theaters in November of 2020, just months after we canceled our festival, a fire tragically destroyed one of our three anchor stages. And so we've been not only recovering from the pandemic, but building back that structure. That's incredible. Which stage was that? So everyone will know the Ted Sean Theater, which is the anchor theater, flagship theater, first theater built for dance in America, period, 1942. 600 and now it has 630 seats. Then we have our outdoor stage that I described before. The theater that burned was the Doris Duke. It was a flexible 200 seat theater that was a place for experimentation. It was a place for artists who frankly aren't ready to fill a, a house 
600 seats times six performances. So it's where many companies had their debuts at the Pillow, where, where international companies made their US debuts. So we've lost our flexible experimental space. And in fact, that's the audience that attracted younger audiences. And if we're thinking about how to recover post-pandemic, let me tell you, we lost a certain percentage of our audience. All performing arts organizations did. People got out of the habit. So we need that theater back to, to really be a part of the total ecology of what makes Jacob's Pillow run. I have to say that my first interaction of actually seeing a Jacob's Pillow performance was in the pandemic with one of those virtual performances, um, several of them. I realized like, oh wait, no, I can just watch this. Here's my money. <laughs> and now I get to watch tap dance in the trees. Yay! <laughs> That's great. Yes. So it is really, it is robust. It is easily accessible now. Yes. There are a, a ton of really wonderful performances that you have up that people can access even now. Not that you shouldn't come to the mountains if you're able, but like there are things that you can participate in from wherever you happen to be. Like dance doesn't necessarily have to be here. It can be wherever you are. Speaking after that truck goes by, <laughs> we are out in the wilds, people. <laughs> Coming up, more with the director of Jacob's Pillow, Pamela Taji. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on NEPM. This is a long way to Tipperary, but how did you get started in dance? What what makes your love of dance endure? Yes, thank you for that question. So I started dance as a child in fourth grade, taking ballet like you know a lot of little girls do. And by the time I was in high school, I decided that I wanted to pursue theater as an actor. That was going to be my profession. So I went to Wesleyan University, where I actually was a history major, but I did a play every every semester and took a dance class every semester because I believed that as, as an actor, I had to have a nimble body that was you know responsive. And I always loved dance. I loved dancing for fun dancing in my kitchen, you know, whatever. Uh, so dance has always been a part of my life. Fast forward, I, for almost 17 years, I was director of the Center for the Arts at Wesleyan University right before I came to The Pillow. And I presented uh, music, world music primarily, theater, dance, oversaw a contemporary art gallery. And it was dance for me that ultimately transcended all. I felt it was the thing that brought people together. I also put choreographers in biology classrooms or physics classrooms. And I saw the power of embodied research, how physicists, working with Elizabeth Streb as an example, who um, thinks about physics and gravity, to working with Liz Lerman, who was thinking about the repercussions of genetic testing and worked with scientists at Wesleyan. And I saw the power of where dance could live. I think when the job at Jacob's Pillow opened up and I thought I could go deep into this art form that has so ignited so many people in our in the greater Middletown community on campus and do it in a national international way that really became a huge opportunity for me your community classes I think are a large part of that engagement I didn't realize that they were open to to more of the community than just people who are who are here who are like specifically here to dance like it, I, I'm not sure if I and maybe others understood quite the scope 
of your community engagement. And I think that that's, that's really cool. Do you want to talk about some of the classes that you're offering on campus? Yes. So mornings from Tuesday through Friday, either at eight or nine o'clock, we have community classes where anyone can come and take African dance, ballet, modern dance, Pilates. There are many offerings. You can see them on our website. You can just come and pay at the door so you don't have to plan in advance. And it's a wonderful way to experience the pillow as, you know, dancing here. So that's one option. Then every Sunday, we have a an open class with festival artists. So you can take a class with a dancer from the Mark Morris Dance Company or a tap class with someone from Dorrance Dance. You know, it's amazing how many dance majors, dance team members we have in our community who just want to feel that again, you forget what it feels like to dance together, to nail a combination, <laughs> you know, uh, to get the sequence. And so so we have that. And then Versus Style was actually here in February. We did a pop-up performance in Pittsfield and a workshop. So there was such, they're from LA. They're one of the best hip-hop companies in the country. We brought them back by popular demand. So they're doing a performance here and then a, a community workshop shop in Pittsfield. Also, so community classes at Jacob's Pillow means either morning classes, Sunday classes, or classes that happen mostly in Pittsfield. Really briefly, the outdoor stage. How long has the outdoor stage been here? I feel like maybe it has it always been here? It's always it's been here since the 1990s. In fact, it was created by uh, our director Liz Thompson, and she needed more space for artists to rehearse. And she said, "What if we put a platform, you know, in front of the Berkshire Hills? People could come and watch, and if they don't like what they see, they can look at the landscape." <laughs> just thought that was such a wonderful thing and so she gave us this huge gift which over time became became a place for free performances performances on the outdoor stage were known as the inside out series that's what it was called pre-pandemic and they were always free every night of the week wednesday through saturday and then when we lost the doris duke theater we needed to have a stage that generated revenue so now we have the choose what you pay uh program and then certain performances outdoors are ticketed So what we did do, which feels different, is in the summer of 21, so pandemic happened 2020, canceled the festival. 2021, we came back with socially distant outdoor performances and we renovated the outdoor stage area. So now there are benches with backs. It's accessible for people in wheelchairs. We have a a wheelchair accessible area that we didn't have before. It's been regraded. It just was, it's a much more beautiful place than it was before because it was our primary and only stage for the entire summer of 21. Pamela Tegi of Jacob's Pillow Dance Festival, I don't want to put you on the spot because of course you love most of the things that are coming to your festival, but you got to have some favorites. And maybe they've already happened because we are in mid-July, but what are some of the things that you are extremely excited about with this particular season? Well, I am, it's, you're absolutely right. It's like choosing between your children. You can't do that. But I do want to highlight two programs. First, Una Doherty is an artist from Northern Ireland. We've never had a choreographer presented at Jacob's Pillow from Northern Ireland. So this is a big deal. All I can say is uh, she's a provocateur. She makes extraordinary work. And we are presenting two pieces. One is Hope Hunt, which actually begins outdoors as people are arriving and then moves into the theater. And then her 
newest work, Navy Blue, that just got incredible reviews in London and in Montreal. This is this work's U.S. debut. It's, it's, it just has to be seen. We have always been a place to introduce artists who people don't know, and people have got to see artists that they don't know, because at one point, Camille A. Brown was someone that people didn't know. Kyle Abraham was someone that people didn't know. Michelle Dorrance, you know, all of those artists got their start at Jacob's Pillow, so we are excited to introduce Una and this fantastic work to Pillow audiences. And then, for the first time ever, we have a hip-hop festival, a, a festival within a festival. It's called Hip Hop Across the Pillow. We are taking over every space here in honor of the 50th anniversary of hip hop. So there will be two new works that we've commissioned for presentation in, in the Sean alongside Rennie Harris, who is arguably one of the most exciting hip hop companies in the world uh, coming out of Philly, the Philly hip hop scene. And then we have performances on the outdoor stage, and then we will have a dance battle to end all dance battles. So <laughs> this is really exciting. And I think people don't think of hip hop often when they think of Jacob's Pillow, so I want everybody to know that they should come out and see. We are really showing the absolute best and most exciting work being done in hip hop in the United States today. That That's exciting. I think it just lends to the credence that you're a well-rounded all areas of dance and trying to cover as much of dance as possible. It's not just the standard for things that people tend to think of dance. It's so much more and it can be so much more and I think you're doing a really good job of that. Okay, I'm going to stop fangirling now. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I appreciate your fangirl Thank you so much. I'm just really excited to be here. I can't believe I'm here. Una Doherty's run of shows just opened last night at P Jacob's Pillow and runs through the weekend. For more information and tickets, you can check out jacobspillow.org for all the things we mentioned. Up next, a farm that was spared from the floods reaches out to help those not so fortunate. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on NEPM. I've got a porch here. I, I said our office, but I got a porch here if we want to sit and yeah, totally up to you. talk. Yeah. It's I mean it's a nice place. Unless you guys want to walk, but what? I mean, it doesn't get more idyllic later. than a church bell chiming while we're gonna go sit on the farmer porch. <laughs> <laughs> it's like such a contrast to the amount of adrenaline that's been coursing through my body for two weeks. Yeah. <laughs> It's different because like I'm seeing the impact of all the area farms around here that are struggling a lot more than we are. We're still struggling with our own minor issues, I'd say, in, in our certain areas of fields that are low-lying, that are just been sitting water, but to travel our dike, you know, last the past two weeks and just see that catastrophic damage is just, and knowing the farmers that have those fields there, like very, very personally is just, it, it hits me hard just knowing that they have to deal with that and um, that they're not going to be able to harvest that crop and the loss that they have there. I feel fortunate in a way, but I feel very... It's like survivor's guilt. That's what I was going to say. Yeah. yeah. It's time for a Local Hero Spotlight with Phil Corman from CISO, the Local Hero folks who have been working tirelessly over these last couple weeks using all of the tools in the toolbox to try to support the farmers who have been affected by these floods. And Harrison Bardwell from Bardwell Farm in Hatfield beautiful. I love this stretch of Hatfield, this main road that runs through town. It's so gorgeous and idyllic. And uh, taking a little breather from all of the, the doom and gloom to talk about some positive stuff that's been going on in the world of farming, at least for you. Yeah. We're a 30-acre diversified vegetable farm growing year-round in both high tunnel and fields. This year we are doing a main farm stand at the farm location and we're uh, directed mainly wholesale. 
This is my eighth or ninth season of farming. Our farm was actually established in 1685, making me ninth generation of Bardwell Farmed. Wow. Um, so I got a lot, of, a lot of history behind us and a lot on my back to keep pushing forward. What's the oldest story you know about this farm? Uh, so the Bardwells actually came from England. A person in the army came from England and they were told by their higher up to settle once winter comes because if you keep traveling, you won't make it because of the harsh winters we were having back 400 years ago. Bardwell, who was in charge of, I guess, leading the army through here, settled in Hatfield in the mid-1600s. They were one of the founders of this town. Any Bardwell you meet in the United States originated from this town. And then the farm started, I think, like 15, 20 years after the town was they established here from that war. So I'm ninth generation of the farm. I'm 11th generation Bardwell in the U.S. Mm -hmm. um, so that would make my grandparents ninth generation. Um, my grandfather, Corey, and my grandmother, Huddy, they were the last main farmers for the farm. They were my mentors back when I was a young kid. The funny story is my grandfather told my father when he was about 16, don't get into farming because there's no money in it. And I think some days we can still ring true to that statement. I say once a farmer, always a farmer. So even though my grandparents were kind of retiring in the farm, they weren't. it wasn't full blast at that point. Um, they still had a huge vegetable garden that was enough to feed half the street, you know. In my early teenage years, between like 10 and 13, I didn't like sitting outside. I was too young to have a job. And so what I did is I started playing in my grandparents' vegetable garden and instantly fell in love with it. And so they really taught me the fundamentals of what vegetable plants are, what plants look like, how to grow and develop plants and crops and harvest things. And so within the next couple of years, I started working on multiple area farms in town. Wendelowski Farm, which was one that has been strongly affected from the floods in the town, uh, was one of my first jobs. Mark, who runs the farm now, his father, Tony, was actually another strong mentor of mine when my grandfather passed away. Um, he has since passed away as well. So I've got this like heritage of older farmers that have passed away um, that have taught me so much. So I reestablished Bartle Farm as my own business in 2016, and I pretty much made it come back alive, if you will, in a whole new aspect. Um, when my grandparents were running the farm, it was mainly tobacco, field corn, onions, they were doing a little bit of that, and I've completely transitioned it to a fully diversified vegetable farm. I guess I don't necessarily understand wholesale with farming around here. Like, is it a threshold sort of thing that you have to fulfill or is it more of a bounty <laughs> sort of thing? Do you feel like you'll have a much bigger draw due to the damage to other farms that we're doing wholesale along with you? Yeah, great question. So, you know, we're a younger farm still and our, our wholesaling is establishing. So every year we're always fighting to get that spot or find that new customer or get our name a little farther out there we've actually were talking in the past week that we are already starting to see impacts with certain customers buying more products um, because they blatantly have told us other farms are literally underwater they can't harvest uh, a good example is uh, river valley co-op we do a lot of business with and they do a lot of business with a lot of farms in this valley um, so we've got little bits and pieces that we sell to them for the first time they asked do you have sweet corn available and we typically haven't sold sweet corn to them in the past four years of doing business. So yeah, we're really seeing just this week alone, 
drastic orders coming in. There's our crew coming in right now at the field. <laughs> uh, <laughs> looks like a good bountiful crop yeah. that they pulled out of there, so that's good. So, you know, lettuce is another big thing that is, is a really hard sell in the middle of summer. It's hard to grow. Everyone has it, and the market gets flooded. And um, we sat on a lot of lettuce in the past couple of weeks before this flooding, and right now it's like that switching. Like, everybody wants lettuce, and thankfully we have that product. I, I don't want to feel like I'm taking business from another farm um, because I know when they come back or their crop comes back in, like River Valley is going to go back to that farm because they have their niche with us and they have the niche with that farm. We're on that pivotal point where we've gotten so much physical rain that crops are just starting to suffer even if they haven't been flooded. Uh, but if we have another week of drastic rainfall, like we are going to start seeing major impacts on things. There's just so much moisture in the ground that our first picking of our new setting of cucumbers, they were like water balloons. The crew called me, they, they were squishy. Oh no. Because they were, <laughs> they were filled with so much water. And did the field get fully flooded and we can't harvest anything? No, but we're dealing with those other minor issues of, okay, we can harvest this, but what's the shelf life on it? A day, two days? Phytophthora is a major disease in this valley that a lot of people might not understand and know, but affects uh, cucurbits like squashes, cucumbers, also tomatoes, peppers, eggplants, a lot of your major crops in the season. That's a soil-borne disease that comes out during wet years or wet conditions. And we are seeing that across all our fields right now. And it's a disease that is very hard to control. It's so interesting how farms have to compete and they cooperate both at the same time. In fact, your start was from a lot of farms in the area who you knew families on the street and helping you access some lands you could lease borrowing equipment and that whole story it's just a really tough time and we've seen farms offering to other farms who have flooded out you can send your crew here and harvest for free i started with utilizing the strength of the other farms in this town when i was just starting out hatfield has very few farms compared to like amherst or hadley or you know that side of the river if you will um so i feel like we're a smaller knit farm community here. There's only like three or four really diversified farms here and then you have the larger scale potato guys uh, which they're kind of different but the same. <laughs> um, great guys uh, but their equipment's way too big to do it. <laughs> but uh, you know what I'm getting at and Phil brought it up is that you know when I started out yeah I was borrowing equipment to do what I do now. I still utilize and borrow equipment and I'm at that point in my life my business now where I actually have the farms that were helping me five years ago reaching out to me in return for help or assistance to borrow or use or help um, because of the floods or just in general in general but I guess what I'm getting at is you know with this this drastic flooding and whatnot you know it made me feel like to reach out even more to these guys like they live right in town I might see them every couple of weeks because we're just so busy but you know I reached out right away to Wendelowski hey I, I saw your loss firsthand you know if there's anything you need give us a call and let, let us know they've done so many favors for me I want to be there to know that I want to return or help in any way I can and I think that's the only way farms will survive could be three years down the road I could be in the same boat half these guys are today you know and I know that if I called them for something they would drop it in an instant and come help all of us coming together and, and working through this as a whole instead of individually and I, I think we've seen that through 
all the social media and the, you know, the higher ups even getting involved with this um, is really, it's truly amazing when these catastrophic issues come out, how many people come out of the woodworks that are, you know, regular supporters, but are already here to give that extra effort to help. So I think that's huge. So what's coming up now? You know, we had a really cold spring this year, which, or maybe we had a normal spring this year, I would say. Um, <laughs> it, felt, it did feel like a normal spring. It felt I like know. actual spring. So, you know, so certain things are a little behind than we were last year, but the new things right now are like tomatoes are just finally starting to come. Eggplant peppers are just starting to come. Our main season sweet corn is just starting to come in. With this climate change, you know, I've I've structured crop plans to start things like early, early. So we are able to start harvesting things in early May. We're finally getting into like the heart of the summer. And that's where I'm, I'm scared but happy at the same time because we don't know what kind of yields and conditions those main season crops are going to look like in the next couple of weeks because they're just starting to come in. They've been brutalized and battled with all this rain and weather. So we're excited to start the harvest of a lot of these crops, but we're unsure of what the condition is going to be of them. And I don't even want to know what a tomato in the field would look like right now in these conditions. It would be I think catastrophic loss in my opinion. She and blighted. Mm. <laughs> so, so can we take a walk from your porch to your farm stand and see what you got there? Sure. We're still setting up a little bit, but we can walk around. <laughs> Everything you can get at the grocery store, we can get. You can get right at our farm stand. We, I think in the heart of our season, we have over 40 different types of vegetables and fruits out here. I guess our first display here is, is all our greens. So we've got our Swiss chards, our kales, our different types of lettuce, which like I said earlier, a lot of people are having issues with lettuce. Fortunately, we actually have lettuce right now, which is big. Rabbits ate all mine and I was sad. They need to eat too. Yeah. I know, but like, wait until I'm done with the lettuce. One crop that we started growing this year new is uh, celery. It's gorgeous celery. It's, it's like the beautiful. biggest celery I've ever seen. Yeah. And with all the leaves, like stop cutting the leaves off your celery, like use them. Them. They're wonderful. They're full of flavor. <laughs> With everything going on this year, you know, this was something new that we tried and, and it worked for us. I can't say what's going to happen next year, but like we've got a really nice crop of celery in our high tunnels and uh, we're really excited to like offer this to our, our customers here because a lot of people don't grow local celery, which is, is unique. We don't grow everything that's at our farm stand. My big, I love to support other local farms or other local businesses. So like right here, the summer squash and zucchini is from Honeypot Farm, which is right down the street from us. They grow a lot of that. I always like to be able to support the local farms or our local farm neighbors that are right down the street. What else do we have? We have blueberries from Sobieski Farm. Uh, we have peaches. People always like peaches, which are coming. Where did your peaches come from? So these peaches, unfortunately, aren't local. They're from New York. I think we all know there's no local peaches. So uh, we're doing our best to kind of have that open mind with people to give them that product, but also have them understand that you're not going to find a local peach yeah. this year because you have to extend the term of local this year when it comes to peaches yes and new I, york counts now we've annexed new york just for this crop don't get ideas and just for this year <laughs> like i really had to sit down this spring and think about what's the definition of local you know you know what what does local mean to me um you know i was from the start i was okay locals like within a five mile radius of me and um i really broadened that up to you know, local is like this Pioneer Valley or the New England area to me now because there's a lot of different farms that are doing similar things. Food that's traveling from California across the whole country, that's not local produce. Um, and I think we can all kind of agree to that. 
These peppers, for instance, just started coming in this past week. We've that are coming in this eggplant. We just started picking, like I said. So, tractor, tractor traffic. This is yeah. gonna be. This is potato equipment right here. This is yeah, one of those tractors equipment. that looks like you could drive my Chevy Bolt right underneath. <laughs> That's Simorowski Potato Farms. <laughs> One of my great friends in this town. And they've got that larger equipment like I was talking for. Might not be so helpful when you're like picking the celery. <laughs> the wheels are as big as I am. Yeah. Harrison Bardwell from Bardwell Farm in Hatfield and Phil Corman from CISA. A reminder that CISA is an underwriter of NEPM. And as a follow-up from our conversation with Senators Spilka and Comerford, the Massachusetts Senate did pass a supplemental budget that includes $20 million in support of farmers impacted by the floods. Yesterday on our Americans with Disabilities Act special, one of our guests, Jeremy Maycomer-Dubbs, shared his personal experience about an incident where he was unable to easily exit Thorns Marketplace in Northampton via wheelchair. It was at the very end of the show. Didn't have an awful lot of time to explain it. We did receive uh, a response from Thorns Marketplace about the incident, but out of fairness to both Jeremy and to Thorns, Jeremy didn't have a lot of time. Thorns doesn't have a lot of time right now, but we will read a little bit of the uh, statement that Thorns issued in response. This is what they wrote. We appreciate having the chance to share our perspective. We very much empathize with Mr. Dubs. We're very sorry for what happened to him while he was simply out for ice cream. Also, Mr. Dubs is correct in that there is a difference between accessibility and ADA compliance, and that difference does exist here in Thorns. They went on to go and describe some of the ADA compliance that they've been advocating for and working on over the years, but they did say that they invite Mr. Dubs to investigate and offer up suggestions and ideas and solutions that could be economically and articulate architecturally feasible, given that he could one day represent the city as he is a candidate for Ward 4 City Council in Northampton. Could be a great hands-on experience on an issue of great importance to him. And we welcome the conversation. And we hope that he'll come back on the show to talk about this and other things. I will say that I have strong feelings about this response that we don't have time for. (laughs) Well, let's see. We don't need to go into it any further. No, we We sure don't. Yes. Let's cut to the chase. Indeed. (laughs) First of all, we thought we might have to dump the entire show because of the potential Trump indictment. But it's not happening today, even though he's racking them up. But do be listening to Pokemon, NPR and all things considered. Would your state also like to indict Trump? (laughs) Collect. Collect Want to catch them all? Yes. Uh, Do be listening to all things considered, because if that does happen, which not likely it seems from what we're hearing today, uh, they will have that coverage. It is almost end of day. So, yeah. Nobody wants to indict this late in the day. It's the plywood ramp to the weekend. It's Thursday. (laughs) There's so much you could be doing, like going to Jacob's Pillow to watch really cool things from Northern Ireland. But Friday in the Fabulous 413, we'll have a preview of Chester Theatre Company's production of the play The Light. We'll talk with the director, Christina Franklin, about the theatrical exploration of black love and intimacy happening in Chester, the gem of the valley. The Wine Thunderdome will pit Primitivo versus its twin sister Zinfandel with Michael Quinlan from Table and Vine. And Live Music Friday with Northfield singer-songwriter Sandy Bailey. Our director is Tony. Flurry of emails does not have the same impact as a furry of blows. Done. Our engineer is Betsy. Oh no, they needed me, Lankdo. Our technical team is Bart. You need a new one, Rankin. And Kara, desperately seeking someplace quiet foster and punk rude boy Dubay. <laughs> Musical thanks to Spouse, Jay Giles Band, Suitcase Junket, Black Kids, Odyssey, Deki Kaji, and the late, great, irreplaceable Sinead O'Connor. I'm Monty Belmonte. I'm Khalees Smith. See you tomorrow on The Fabulous 413. I am looking for food for her
kids 